Welcome to Leader Spotlight. On this podcast, we bring you the stories of leaders, their personal journeys, and put a spotlight on those inspiring things they are doing in their organizations. I'm very excited about our guest today. We will be talking with Chris Yeh. He's an author, a speaker, and he's got just an incredible um, background and history of working in the startup world. So excited to have Chris. So hello, everyone. I'm Annette Klazowski, your host. I'm an executive coach, an entrepreneur, a crazy dog person, and a health and fitness junkie. Although today I have not been fitnessing as much as I need to, so I'm a little sore today after, <laughs> after a workout with one of my trainer virtually. But I'm here with Annie Brown, our producer and co-host. Annie, I like to think of Annie as um, she can do all things. She has secret powers, but she is really in the marketing and social guru, but she is all things creative. She um, is task oriented and you're just very talented. So I feel lucky to be working with you, Annie. Thank you. Well, you know, my secret powers are still secret to myself. So hopefully (laughs) I'll figure out what those are someday. Maybe like go to the Marvel uh, uh, school where they help you define your powers. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm very excited to hear from Chris Yeh today. We both met Chris. What I was trying to figure out how long ago that was. Was that like seven years ago? No, no, like five years ago, something like that. I think at the Women's Startup Lab. Yeah, four four to five years ago. Yeah, when I wow. went to the Women's Startup Lab in Silicon Valley, and there you were. I met you <laughs> and Chris. I met. We met a lot of great people through that experience. Yeah, that was a lot of great people. Yeah, that was that was wonderful, and we were we were living in the house, same house together for a while, so that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I definitely see Chris as part of our origin story, and therefore the origin story of Leader Spotlight. So that's neat. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm cozy at home and and grateful to have Annette's uh, leadership and friendship during this time. I know that there's a lot of people who are struggling right now, so sending a lot of love their way. And I also want to say, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at Leader Spotlight, or you can reach me directly at Annie at AnnetteKlazowski.com with topics that we could cover that would help you through this time. So whether that's SBA loans, remote working, leading through turbulent times, just let us know. And and I and today I. I think Chris will be sharing, you know, as we're in this middle of this coronavirus pandemic, um, I know there are people that have lost their jobs or are entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders struggling on what to do. And so we are trying to bring a few stories that give some people um, some perspective. So yes, please reach out. We would love to be a resource for you. Yeah. And, and, and as always, I wanted to uh, read a review from one of our listeners. Um, Pure Energy Apothecary uh, commented that she loves the stories so much for us to learn from each other. And I love this comment because that's exactly why we do what we do. Um, the folks in our network are teachers and sharing and listening to the stories of others is crucial to success in both life and work. Um, so don't forget, if you like this episode, please take a moment to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or comment on Instagram at Leader Spotlight. Be sure to leave your name, where you're listening from, and your company name, and we'll be sure to give you a shout out at the beginning of the show. 
Um, oh, and I also wanted to mention that uh, just along with the COVID-19 and kind of how we can be a resource, um, we have launched a virtual version of Annette's Women's Executive uh, uh, Board, and we are offering a free month of membership to any woman executive who has been affected by this pandemic. Um, so that's just about everyone. So the link to join is executiveboard.online. That's executive, B-O-A-R-D dot online. And uh, Annette can say a little bit more about this, but I'll make sure to include that link and any other resources um, in, the, in the comments about this, about this podcast. Yeah, the virtual executive boards are peer advisory groups or, or people that sit in your chair people you would consider a peer. And we just create a space where we give each other feedback, advice, wisdom. And the goal is that um, the tide rises all boats and we just want to help leaders be more successful in what they're doing, better leaders, you know, help them to motivate teams and then also help them to solve business issues that they may have. So we would love for you to come and join us and um, be part of our groups and get some of the feedback of a, sometimes they call them mastermind groups, but it's just a peer advisory group. On today's episode, we are talking with Chris Yeh. I'm really excited to have Chris on. He has authored a couple of books. One is the Blitzscaling book. So um, I'm sure we're going to hear a little bit about that. He has been a writer, an investor, an entrepreneur. He has had that ringside seat in a world of startups um, for a long time. He's kind of been in that world. Um, hundreds of companies from garage dwelling startups to Fortune 50 titans. He's have tapped into his knowledge and insights. And uh, I personally had the privilege of working with Chris through the Startup Lab in the Silicon Valley. And so it's a treat and honor for us to have him with us today. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much, Annette. It is a pleasure to be on. Well, I am very grateful for you taking time uh, to be with us. I want to jump in. Um, I know you have a personal mission statement of, I help interesting people do interesting things. And I know that you write and speak and you're truly living out that mission. I want to kind of step back a little bit and, and just talk, talk to us a little bit about how you ended up where you are today. Kind of, you know, how did that journey to begin and what, what curves did you take um, to be kind of in the seat you are today? Certainly. Well, I think that my story can give hope to people who aren't exactly sure where they want to go or how they're going to get there because it's never been the case that I had a carefully planned out path. So I went to school at Stanford University way back a long time ago. I recently had my 25th college reunion, and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. There were things I was interested in and, and good at, so I was always good at math and science. I was always good at literature, writing, the humanities, pretty much everything. And I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I'd grown up really loving reading, and so I had some thoughts of being a writer, but I'd also investigated that lifestyle and determined that it was not necessarily the easiest one. And then, of course, I had a strong science and math background. My father actually has a PhD in electrical engineering, so certainly I was well aware of that part of the world as well. So while I was at Stanford, I went in, didn't know what I was going to major in, ended up studying creative writing and product design engineering, so really tapping into that interestingness 
level. You could see even then I was really intent on doing things I thought were the most interesting rather than the things that were the most conventional or considered the most practical. And it was after I graduated that things took an interesting turn. So originally when I graduated, I probably would have just gone to work for IDEO, the very famous design firm, where my college advisor, David Kelly, was the founder and CEO. So very easy path to just go straight from the dorms at Stanford over to working for this brilliant, world-famous company. But I ended up instead taking a detour and jumping into the internet startup world. And this was in 1995. And as a result of that, my whole life changed. I went in and started focusing on the business side of things and got involved in the startup world, the, the financing, all the different elements of it. And I've been in that startup world for the past 25 years. So that was probably the biggest thing that swerved my life around. And everything from there has just sort of fallen out from that. So I went to business school and started a couple of companies, started doing investments in companies and advising companies. And ultimately, I was able to circle back to my love of writing and get a chance to become an author in the past, oh, seven or eight years or so. I've been doing more and more of the writing. And that has been great for me. It's given me a chance both to write, which is something I really enjoy, as well as to go around the world and share my ideas, which is something I also enjoy. There's nothing I love better than an audience, which is when you asked me to come on the podcast, I said, it sounds great. Let's figure out a time to do it. Well, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to that. So, and, and that's really actually our paths crossed um, kind of in that startup world. So I went to Silicon Valley, was part of the, a cohort and the Women's Startup Lab, and you were one of the mentors and people that came in and really shared and fed and kind of into that group your experience and wisdom. And, uh, you know, and I had owned a consulting business and had been in business for myself, but that true technology startup for me at my, at my late ripe age, um, man, I learned a lot through that process and, um, you know, in that company survey source is still going and, you know, do, doing well. Talk about, um, from being in the trenches, you know, where you're actually part of the startup teams to where you crossed over to really the mentoring and consulting and, and working. Um, what was that like for you? Well, it was a, an intentional shift as well. So I'd gone through this process. Essentially, I had, again, begun as an entrepreneur back in my 20s, uh, early 20s, really, and had been starting companies along the way. And then around, I would guess, that 2007, 2008 timeframe, before the, the financial crisis really hit, but sort of in that time range, what I realized was that at the time, my kids were very young. They were five and three years old. And I'd been running very hard as a founder, a CEO type for quite some time. And I decided, you know what, I need to take a step back because you know, I'd gotten to the point where I got used to thinking myself once upon a time as a... Uh, a kid wonder, somebody who had gone to college at age 15, was always doing things earlier than everyone else. And then I looked around one day in Silicon Valley. I said, I'm the old guy now. I'm in my <laughs> 30s. I'm married. I have kids. And to these younger kids who are doing these companies now, I just seem absolutely ancient. And so I said, okay, well, I got I to lean into it. So I have this principle in life I call the barbell principle, which means you know, it's better to be at one extreme or the other. Don't try to find your way to the middle because it's an unstable position. 
And so I said, well, if I can't be the young guy anymore, I need to be the old guy. And so that's when I made the decision to start making that transition to being a mentor, being an advisor, being an investor, because I knew that my days of a, as, a, as a young guy were over. And so that was really the transition. And I said, well, unfortunately, I've had all these experiences, helped start multiple companies, had success, had failure. Uh, let me share some of those ideas with people. And because I've always been good at speaking, I even taught public speaking when I was in college and good at writing, that was how I was able to share those ideas and really start to have influence on others. Okay, so what's one of the biggest lessons you think you've learned in the startup world? Well, I think the biggest lesson that anyone can learn is that the world is constantly changing. And whatever happened to work now is not guaranteed to work two weeks from now. And so when you're in the startup world, the, one of the reasons why it's so exhausting, but also exhilarating, is that you have to constantly try to learn. And you're always on the lookout expecting that whatever you're doing, like you can't just turn the crank. If you're turning the crank within a month or two, somehow that crank is going to stop working. You've got to continually reinvent and find new ways to achieve the things you're trying to achieve. Do you have any recipe or ways you teach people to be able to have that vision and reinvent and kind of stay ahead of that curve? So the first thing is I tell them, you got to start from first principles. If you're looking at numbers, metrics, and things like that, you have to ultimately remember how that metric ties back to the real world. So I'll give you an example. Uh, in the world of the online applications and commerce and so on and so forth, there's this whole field of growth hacking where people look at all these numbers, try to figure out a funnel, try to optimize how many people drop out, how many people get referred, and so on at every point in the funnel. And as a result of that, you're going to try different advertisements, different flows, different everythings. And there are all these little numbers that tell you what the conversion rate is. This is all stuff that you and your, your audience are familiar with. Now, what I like to point out to people is at the end of the day, you have to look at those customers that were generated and see, did they actually buy something? Did they actually generate revenue? Did they actually generate business? Are they valuable? Because you could tune your funnel and your funnel might produce the best numbers you ever saw. But if the people coming out the other end don't actually become customers and buy things and make you money, what was the point? And I think it's very easy for people to get caught up in the day-to-day -to, -day to optimize the numbers around them instead of tying it back to the underlying reality of what actually drives the business. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. And sometimes harder than, than it sounds <laughs> to, to really get back to that. So that's really good basics. Um, okay, so you have a book called The Alliance, which I love and refer back to a lot. Talk a little bit about how that book came about. Yeah, so The Alliance was how I ended up working with my co-author, Reid Hoffman, great guy, very famous uh, co-founder of LinkedIn, first investor in Facebook, early investor in Airbnb, and many other uh, incredible things. And The Alliance is actually the outgrowth of his previous book, the Startup View, which he co-authored with my other friend, Ben Kaznoka. And with the Startup View is all about how should individuals adapt to this modern world we live in. And then the alliance came out of the question, well, if that's how individuals should adapt, how should companies adapt? And the alliance is really looking at what is the nature of the relationship between an employee and an employer and what is different about it than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And what's different is you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people would work at a company and expect to work at the company for 20 years, maybe even retire at that company. And today, 
the tenure that people have at any given company tends to be so short that that kind of relationship doesn't exist anymore. And so the old ways of thinking about work, of saying, well, we want employees who are going to be loyal to the company, what is the meaning of loyalty when the company and the employee are only likely to be working together for a couple of years? And so for us, our principle is it's an alliance. It's a relationship of mutual benefit, mutual investment, mutual trust. But it's only going to work if you're honest with each other. If as a company and an employee, you're willing to say, listen, probably I, I as an employee am not going to be here for 20 years. But during the time I am going to be here, how do we make sure that I'm having the best positive impact on the business? And how do we make sure that what I do for this company is improving my long-term value in the marketplace, improving my long-term employability and really accelerating my career? So that's what the principle of the alliance is about. And I really do think that those ideas are going to become even more important these days as companies are struggling, massive layoffs are occurring. The question of how employers and employees relate is going to be important because the employees who are treated badly at this period of time who feel like they've been dealt with unfairly are going to have long memories. And it's not a question of whether, oh, you laid people off or you didn't lay people off. How you handle yourself, how honest you are, how transparent you are has a big impact. Yeah, I know. The the whole pandemic with the coronavirus, I think I think we're going to look back at this time and we're going to credit as things never went back to the way they were. So, you know, I, I'm curious of your thoughts about, you know, we've had all these tools, you know, now you have people working from home, uh, you have virtual teams starting to figure out how to to work. Some companies were prepared for that, some weren't, even though we've had the tools and the capability, and we've even had a generation that has been, you know, screaming for that flexibility. How do you think that's going to really shape culture once, you know, let's just, when we go back to normal, what what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think you can see that it's just going to accelerate the process of what's been happening. So let's take a couple of different trends. One trend is a trend towards shorter terms of uh, what we call tours of duty at different companies. The fact that people realize that you know, life is fragile, you could be discarded at any second, is going to make them even less likely to buy into some fictional notion of loyalty. But on the other hand, the companies that have treated people well through this process, that have been open and honest about their communications, they're going to be the ones who are going to come out ahead as employers of preference. So one great example is uh, here in San Francisco, there's a restaurateur named Michael Mina, who runs a number of high-end restaurants. And obviously, he's in a situation where the restaurants have been forced to close, people have been forced to be laid off or furloughed. Because guess what? Uh, Even though there are some places that are staying open for takeout or delivery, there's very few people doing takeout and delivery of $300 fine dining. Yeah. So what have they done? Well, they laid people off, uh, but what what they also did is they kept on a small skeleton staff that is preparing food. And what the food they're preparing is food for all the employees and their families. So every day they can go to the restaurant where they work and they can get the food they need to pay that, to to feed their family. Now that is not something that costs a huge amount of money. It costs something, but that's the kind of relationship where those employees are going to remember afterwards. And if afterwards some other restaurant comes along and says, Hey, we want to poach you. We want to pay you something extra. Are they going to think to themselves, you know, what is the nature of this relationship? Is this somebody who's going to treat me with respect? Are they going to treat me this way 
that this previous employer treated me. Maybe I'm not going to make that jump just for a little extra money. Yeah, I love that. I love that example. I know we're seeing a lot of really innovative uh, pivots, you know, in markets and what people are doing. So I, I love that. Okay, so now um, your newest book is Blitz Scaling, which once again, I love. Um, t- give a little preface about that book. So Blitzscaling is all about what are the forces that drive the global leaders of tomorrow? Why are there companies like Facebook and Google that have grown so rapidly and become so powerful? And the answer is that we live in a world where more and more markets are winner take most. And that's because everyone is so connected. Because of all the connectivity, there are more networks. Because there are more networks, there's a greater tendency to have things like network effects that give whoever is the market leader a big advantage, which that can then be turned into sustainable competitive advantage. And so companies like Amazon or Apple or Google that have developed some sort of sustainable competitive advantage that are dominating a winner-take-most market, they're able to really generate these incredible returns and have this strong market position for years or even decades to come. And blitzscaling is, okay, if that's the way markets work these days, what is the optimal strategy? And the optimal strategy is if you're in a market that's a winner-take-most market and it's really valuable, it is optimal to prioritize speed over efficiency, despite all the uncertainty and risk, because only the market leader is going to make money out of the deal. Right? If, you want, if you're in a mar- winner-take-most market, the market leader is going to overwhelmingly make all the money in the market. And so it's worth it to you to sacrifice to be less efficient if it allows you to move faster and get to that critical scale. So what would you tell the entrepreneur um, today? Kind of in, you know, we, we are in the state that we are in with the coronavirus crisis and there's a lot of people that have started businesses that are kind of at that uh, fulcrum, you know, of, of how are they going to leverage and are they going to survive? But what would your advice be to that entrepreneur? Yeah, so I think the advice is speed is always going to matter. But the nature of that speed is going to be different. During good times, the focus on speed is, how do I increase my market share as quickly as possible? These days, the focus, if you're in the kind of industry that's going to struggle through this pandemic, the focus is, how do I act as quickly as possible? And again, the people that act quickly, whether it is to pivot to a new business, whether it is to put the business on a firm financial footing, are going to have an advantage over everyone else. But they have to leverage that advantage. So let's say that you've acted quickly in the case of this downturn to figure out a way to shore up your strategic position. You also have to be looking and reading the tea leaves and understanding when we're coming out of this, because we will come out of this. This is not the new normal. We're not going to be like this for the rest of our lives. So we are going to come out of this. And if you are really observing things closely and you see the signs of the thaw before other people, and you've already positioned yourself in a place where you have the resources, you have the ability to call people back because you've, you've handled their relationships in the right way, then recognizing the thaw and acting quickly allows you to play the rebound. So instead of being someone who's reacting and says, oh, now things are getting better. Okay, now we'll start bringing people back. If you read in advance when that's going to happen and you're the one who comes out of the gate right as the recovery happens, you're actually going to gain in market share and you're going to gain in your power. 
Yeah, that's good. That's good. What else are you seeing and where do you think we're going to go from here? Well, I really think so much depends on whether or not we're going to have enough testing and enough treatment. So if we look around the world, we can look at different countries and view these as experiments that can tell us about how are things going to go. And you look at a country like Singapore, which has done an outstanding job of responding to this pandemic. Uh, despite having a lot of links to China, which is where the outbreak began, Singapore was able to lock things down, have very extensive testing, and find a way for the country to prevent this from getting out of control. But at the same time, a lot of people had praised Singapore. They said, wow, Singapore was able to do this without locking the country down. Well, it turns out they were able to do that without locking the country down, but they continued their observation and saw, you know what? The cases are starting to accelerate. And they did just recently lock the country down, close down the schools, close, essential, close non-essential businesses. And you look at that and you say to yourself, wow, if the country that has done the single best job of containing this has to ultimately go to social distancing, what does that tell us about the rest of us? It says we need to find treatments. We need to have the testing. We need the ability to ultimately uh, prevent this from spreading. And it may mean that we will open and shut and open and shut several times, but we have to be guided by the data. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And that's, and that's a confusing maze is, uh, you know, the, you, and I'm sure you are hearing it too, is you get data, but it's, you know, just because there's an increase in rise of positive tests, it's not like we're comparing apples to apple because we don't know how many tests they've done and we don't know if, if it's just, you know, right on track or if there really is a rise. And so it's confusing. The data is confusing out there. Yeah, so is there any, yeah, it is, it is. So what are you doing with your time during this, uh, the season we're in? Well, a lot of it is trying to do things that are still valuable. So it's writing, but it's writing more about how do you respond to this coronavirus rather than other topics. Because guess what? You know, nobody is interested in anything else other than things that relate to the coronavirus right now. It is the signal fact of our time. So that's a part of it. And the other part is trying to keep people optimistic. I think that it's very easy for us to get caught up in what's happening, to, to say, oh, my God, this is unprecedented. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. Those are all true, by the way. But it will eventually come to an end. And the way to best play this is not to wallow around in self-pity, but to actually keep an eye out for when that thaw comes and then be able to play that rebound. That's good. That's good. And so how, how do you look, um, and I'm sure people are reaching out to you just for your forward thinking, um, you know, what, what are you coming up with on re- how to respond during this time? Are there any other um, of your key secrets that you can give us on what you really think people in business or just people in general should be doing? Well, I think that one of the things that we should probably understand is given that this is going to last longer than we think. It's important to plan not for a month of this, but for an extended period where we may have restrictions coming in and going out without a lot of warning. And so to me, that means that people should be investing more in the uh, remote working infrastructure than they have, right? If you think about it, I'm guilty of this myself. So it's hard to imagine spending more money in an environment where everyone's really worried about how they're going to make payroll. But on the other hand, 
what you want is you want to make sure that the people that you have who are working are able to be effective. We're doing all these Zoom conferences. You know what? Everyone should have at least two devices. They should have one, let's say they have one laptop in which they do most of their work. They should have a second laptop that's running the Zoom call so that they don't have to be incapable of working on their laptop while they're listening into the Zoom call. And that's just a simple, simple example. Maybe you want to buy people those screens that they put behind them so that they have a better background. Uh, maybe you want to make sure that they have an HD webcam so that the picture quality is better and they can actually talk with clients and customers more effectively. So that kind of investment in the remote working infrastructure, I think, is something that people really be looking at more strongly if they're running a company. Yeah, I like that. I also think it's a um, time, too, where uh, I go back kind of to your Alliance book is, you know, really looking at um, tours of duty. Uh, I think this is a great time for cross-training. It's a great time for people to sharpen their saw. And um, I know we're busier than we have been in a while, but there are places in industries where I think you can do that. Is there anything about creating an interesting tour of duty during this time? Yeah, I think that this is, so the, the trick is to look at this terrible situation and try to find the silver lining or the opportunity. And part of it is, you know, of course, if you're one of those lucky few companies where your business is surging, great. Just figure out how to manage that growth. That's fantastic. But if you're like the rest of us, you're dealing with a significant downturn, ask yourself, what are the things I can do to build up capability now so I'm better capable of playing the rebound? I'll give you an example. I have a friend who is a premier thinker in the field of search engine optimization. And he has been head of SEO for big companies like SurveyMonkey. His name is Eli Schwartz. And he and I were chatting the other day. And he was, I was saying, we were talking about what should he be doing because people are not thinking necessarily about increasing sales. Right now they're thinking about how do I survive? I said, well, you know, if people, have, if people have staff and they're not sure what that staff can do to be effective, why not pour those people resources into something like SEO where the effects are felt over time? It's a long-term investment, but this is the perfect time to make that investment, to invest in the people time do all those projects that you previously were not going to do simply because you were too busy with other things. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right. So what's your next book? Do you have another book in you? Well, you know, originally we were going to be working on the blitzscaling playbook. And what we may do is we may take the section on blitzscaling in tough times and get that out even sooner, because this is going to be something that people really have to think about over the next six to 12 months and it would be better for them to have some frameworks to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. Just on pivoting and leveraging and yeah, I think that would be good. Well, at the end of the show, Chris, I always ask our guests who are there for, so it's as the saying goes, show me your closest colleagues, friends, mentors, and I will show you your future. So I want to end with kind of knowing who are your four. Got it. I'm thinking about people that uh, people who I, I learn from, uh, I draw lessons from. How do you define it? It can be anybody. Yeah, it can be just you know where do you go to get your inspiration? Who's kind of kept you motivated, inspired? 
centered, you know, in any of those kind of, kind of throughout your career? Sure. So let me throw out a, a couple of folks. And I think that, you know, you can draw some interesting lessons from them. Uh, some of these actually drawn from the book, The Alliance, where it, the authors, all of us, answered the question, who are the people you most admire? And the answers I gave were Abraham Lincoln, Mr. Rogers, and David Packard, the founder of Hewlett Packard. And I'll add one more person at the end. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is a great example of somebody who found himself running the United States at its greatest moment of crisis, even greater than the one we're in right now. Because at the end of the day, the coronavirus is not going to kill uh, tens of millions of people. It's not that lethal. We're going to survive this. It's not a zombie apocalypse or something like that. Whereas Abraham Lincoln was guiding the country when it faced a fundamental uh, and existential threat of disunion. And what's interesting about Abraham Lincoln is not just that he was a brilliant leader, a brilliant orator, a great writer, all these different things, but he was able to do so in a way that really embodied empathy and forgiveness. And he had this incredible emotional intelligence that allowed him to work with people, famously documented in the book Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which included people who had run against him for president, people who had previously insulted him in his life. And he built a cabinet of the most capable people he could find, even though many of them were former opponents who had ridiculed him in the past. And yet, over time, as he led the country through the war, those people like Seward and Stanton came to absolutely love Abraham Lincoln and became incredibly devoted to him because they realized that they had not really understood his genius before. So I think that in his emotional intelligence and his empathy, his willingness to work with others, to do whatever it took to get things to, to, to be successful. I think that you can all learn, learn from Abraham Lincoln. And if he can go through this darkest period in American history, we can get through the one we're in right now. Uh, the second person I mentioned is Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And there I draw the lesson of just how important it is to be kind and how important it is to really understand how other people think. What made him special was not just that he was kind and basically the closest thing to a saint that the United States has, but because he really understood how to see things from the perspective of the children that he was speaking to. He understood that they had fears. He understood that they had questions. And his ability to practice this kind of extreme empathy, know the kinds of things that people were thinking, and then address those fears and address those questions, was what made him so incredibly special. And I'm reminded of something that happened where actually after the 9-11 attacks, he came out of retirement. He had retired before the attack. He came out of retirement to record a public service announcement. He's very famous now. He talks about how his mother always said, when things happen like this, look to the helpers, look to the people who are trying to help others. And this has become a very famous meme, something that people all talk about. But what people don't always realize is when they were filming this, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, was actually racked with doubt. He said, I just don't know how this is going to help. I mean, I'm just a guy on television talking to children. How can I help with such a huge problem? What kind of impact can I have? And I think what I take away from that is we all go through a life with this feeling of, am I enough? Am I going to be able to do this? And here's Mr. Rogers, somebody who told those millions of children, including millions of latchkey children who did not have you know, the kind of parental involvement that they ought to have, that they were special, that they were somebody that he loved, they were somebody he believed in. 
And even he needed to hear that message. Even he doubted the impact he could have. Of course, the rest of us know the impact that he had, but for him, he wasn't entirely certain. So it's important to know that even the greatest among us are wrapped by this kind of doubt. Uh, and then finally, on the business side, there's David Packard, who invented Silicon Valley management, who invented things like stock options and management by walking around, flat hierarchies, all these different things were really the hallmarks of Silicon Valley. And it's just unfortunate that you know, Silicon Valley now worships Steve Jobs, who is a brilliant genius, one of the greatest business people who ever lived, but not necessarily the nicest guy. And so these founders who should be basing their behavior on somebody like David Packard, who understood that the most important thing was to be a good boss and be a good leader for your people, rather than being someone who just valued the product above all else and was willing to abuse people in order to get what they wanted. The last person I'll mention, uh, I think it's just really good from a historical perspective, again, somebody dealing with a crisis. Uh, here in the United States, we had Franklin Roosevelt, but then of course, in the United Kingdom, they had Winston Churchill. And their situation was more dire than ours because they were the only country left in Europe standing between Nazi Germany and total domination. And there's a very famous movie that came out a couple of years ago. Gary Oldman played Winston Churchill. It's called The Darkest Hour. And it really emphasizes just how dark things were. And it includes some of Winston Churchill's incredible speeches. And the lesson I draw there is that you know, so much of what's necessary during a period of crisis as a leader is not just making decisions, although those are really important. It's also really important to actually understand that moving the spirits of the people who work for you, the people on your team, is really critical. And at the end of the movie, The Darkest Hour, uh, what one of the characters says is, you know, Winston Churchill has mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. And the ability to do that as a leader, I think, is going to be very important in the days and months ahead. Oh, that's great. I think that's a great way to wrap up. Um, very insightful. And again, thank you so much, Chris. I know you are um, very sought after and, and busy, and I really appreciate you taking time to join us. No, my pleasure. And just because this is a podcast, it is tradition to plug everything at the end. And the first is, of course, that you can find me at chrisye.com. So pretty much everything I do is ultimately linked to from there. It's just C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. That includes my own podcast, which you can find on chrisye.com. And it includes the book Split Scaling, B-L-I-T-Z-S-C-A-L-I-N-G, and The Alliance, and all the other things that I do. That is great. And we'll make sure we put that um, in the bottom of the podcast as well so people can find you and and find all of your great resources. Hey all, Annie here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leaders Spotlight. Make sure to visit our website, AnnetteKlazowski.com forward slash Leaders Spotlight, where you can find resources mentioned on this show, as well as past episodes. Check for new episodes of Leaders Spotlight every Friday, or better yet, Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at Leaders Spotlight.